So we're starting a new series today called In the Meantime, and um, and in the meantime, I've got to move fast today. So read your announcements. Uh, if you were here for the end of the first service, you know we got quickly through the three baskets. Um, in our series, here's where we're going. If this, this rope, Keith called me yesterday, he goes, dude, there's a rope across the worship center. I said, yeah, man, I did that. And he goes, okay, I just wanted, I wanted to know. It's a sermon illustration. So if, if we're going to say that this rope represents eternity, and we're just going from one side of the building to the other, it's only 60 feet, it'd be better if this went all the way around the world, but, but just go with me. So the Bible says that in the beginning, so over here, this represents the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And then it says, no, 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 it was very good. So in the beginning, everything was perfect. The Bible tells us that in the end, Jesus is coming back and he's going to restore all things and it will be perfect again. You and I live in the middle in the meantime, because we know that in the beginning, something happened. Sin entered into the world and sin has multiplied thousands and billions and billions of times till you get to where we are. And so somewhere on this line, and I'm just going to say this because I can reach it right here. This represents right now your life where we're living in these times. See if I can do this. I couldn't do it the first service. Ha, first time. Now this, and really what we need to take is like a little bitty, um, little bitty fine point pin and put a dot right here. And then if you can stretch this, this rope all around the world, your little dot represents your 60, 70, 80 years in this lifetime compared to all of eternity, right? And so what we need to figure out is what do you do when your little dot of eternity, when there's nothing you can do, we're going to go over this, this question again and again, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? Because some of you are at a place in your career where, where you're just not where you thought you were going to be. And there's not enough time to make up your career, what you thought was going to be. Maybe you didn't pay attention to your, your school studies or whatever. And it's just too late to do that. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when your marriage is not where you want it to be? And there's no point at, there's no way at this point it can become what you want it to be because you just can't make up all of those, those years that, that you lost. What do you do when you have a child, a relationship with a child that is not what you want it to be? And it may never be what you want it to be. What do you do when, when you're close to retirement? I'm thinking more about, about retirement because I'm 53 and there's not enough time to make up the money. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? This is what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. Now, let me just say, there's always options. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, if you're in dark times, there are options and most of them are bad. If you're lonely, there's stuff you can do to not be lonely for a short time, but it's gonna leave you more lonely in the future. There are things you can do in your marriage when your marriage isn't what what you want it to be that will ultimately destroy your marriage, not get you where you want it to be. There are things you can do, shortcuts, get rich quick uh, schemes that are going to leave you out in the cold. We've all heard stories about that, right? So there's options, but they're usually bad options. And so when you don't have any options, what do most people do? A lot of people get mad at God and everyone around them and anger turns into bitterness. And because bitter people are so much fun to be around, everybody moves away and they become more lonely. They get more angry. Or people begin to compare themselves to others, especially believers compare themselves to other believers. If if you're a Christian and you've ever gone through a dark time, most of us have, inevitably, if you come to where Christians are, you're going to hear a story, something like this. Somebody's going to come in. You may come to a small group and somebody comes in. God answered my prayer. And you're in a dark time and you're thinking, God's not answering my prayer. So you listen. What, what did God do for you? Well, see, I, I lost a $20 bill and the pizza man was on the way. And I prayed, dear God, I need to pay that pizza man because I need that $20 bill. Little Johnny came in, slammed the front door and the pizza and the, the $20 just flew out from underneath the recliner. It almost landed in my lap. Isn't God awesome? 
and you think, I hate you. (laughs) And some of us think, I'd really like to punch you in the throat because you do not know what problems are. Ever been there? Or is that just a preacher? Am I the only carnal person here? Okay. Okay, thank you. Three of us and we'll just keep going. The enemy of God, I'm not even going to name him. The enemy of God wants you to compare your lives to other people because you will become resentful of them. And then it's such a short step from resenting people to resenting God. And what you're resenting isn't even real because most of the time, all you see is the Facebook portion of someone's life where their hair's always right, where, you know, their kids are the greatest. And, and, you know, if, if you think somebody in this room has it all together, it just means you don't know them because we all have stuff, right? We all go through dark times. When you're in a dark time, you are going to start to believe some, some lies. And so I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. If you're not in a dark time, some of you are, if you're not in dark, here's, here's the lies we start to believe. First lie, I'll never be happy again. Now we are melodramatic when we're in dark times. I'm just going to tell you that, right? So if your little dot represents your 60 or 70 years and your little dot, let's say it's 2017 and you go, I will never be happy again because all of these thousands of years of history, God may have done something, but my little dot, it's all about me and I'll never be happy again. When I was in junior high, I had it good. When I was in college and I didn't have to pay bills and all I had to do was go to school and go to football games and go to Bonita Creek to country and western dance. That's what my daughter does. Man, times were good, but I'll never be happy again. First lie. Second lie. Nothing good can come from this. Because again, I don't care what's happened in the past. (laughs) Actually, I don't care what's happened with you. I don't care what's happened in the Bible nothing good can come from this because I have all knowledge of my little universe that I live in, my little dot. Nothing good is going to come from this. Third lie, there's no point in continuing this marriage, this relationship, this job, or even this life. This is what people do. God may have been evident in the past. God may do something in the future. But God's not big enough to do anything in my life. This is what you're proclaiming. This is what you're believing when you're in a dark spot. And then the last one, I'm the only one who's ever felt this way. My job in this series is to help you broaden your perspective outside of your little bitty dot. So that's where we're going over the next six weeks. Every every person, every believer who's ever gone through dark times has said, hello, God, Do you know where I am? Do you see my problems? And do you care? Everyone's asked that. And and let me just tell you something. Good news. If you're a Christian, the Bible speaks directly to this. If you're a non-Christian, good news. The Bible speaks directly to this. You may not believe the Bible, so maybe that's not good news, but but the Bible speaks to it. And I'm going to give you a couple of statements that are going to carry you through this whole series. We're going to come back to over and over. First statement, in the meantime, when you're in your dark times, you don't know what to do. In the meantime, God is not absent. He's not apathetic. He's not angry. He's not absent. He's not apathetic. That means he doesn't care. He's not a, he's not a God like the, like the Muslim God. The Muslim God is very far off and does not care about Muslims. 
They try to please him, but they don't know whether they do or not. This God is not my God. The God of scripture, the God of Jesus Christ is not an apathetic God and he's not angry. That's the first thing. Um, and, and some of you are asking, what did I do? Why, why did, why did this happen? Um, by the way, I'm reading a couple of books right now that, that you, you may want to read. One of them is disappointment with God by Philip Yancey written in 1988. I read it before I got married and, and somehow God brought this to my mind this week and it is a fabulous book. Some of the stuff that I'm sharing with you comes from that. There's another one that he wrote called where is God when it hurts. And then I just ordered it's, it's coming tomorrow. There's another book by Philip Yancey called the question that never goes away. And it's the why question. If you, if you really want answers, then, then look into that or come to the series. Shorter, shorter, shorter answers come to the series. Um, some of you are going why, and here's the oversimplified answer to why you're going through dark times. You were born. Now, I have to say that some of, you, some of the junk in your life is because of your choices. And God is a, is a perfect heavenly father and some, he's going to let you suffer consequences when you disobey him. Some of it. Some of your, your dark times occur because of other people make choices. Some of them you have chosen to align with. And so you get, you get, some of you didn't, some of them your family and you can't, you, you know, that's part of why God, I think God started the church is when your family sucks and you need a new family. So you come and you find others and anyway, but there's, there's, there's a couple other reasons you may be going through dark times. One is you are being attacked by the enemy of God. If you're following God, his enemy will attack you. Um, and, and so you have to figure out which one it is. Is, is it, is it my choice? Is it someone else's choices? Or is it, the Bible says that Jesus was led by the Holy spirit into the wilderness to be tempted so that he could be proven. So you have to figure out what's going on there, but, but I'm going to tell you some other stuff for in the meantime. So here's the second statement I want you to carry with you. God's silence does not equal God's absence. God's silence does not equal God's absence. And, and as I was thinking about this, I realized that our little 40, 50, 60, however many years, our little dot is nothing compared to, there's two times in the history of Israel where God was silent for 400 years. Four seconds and you start bailing on God. 400 years. One of them was when they were in slavery in Egypt and, and God didn't speak for 400 years until Moses. And then the next time was after the Old Testament before Jesus was born in the New Testament. 400 years of silence. And the Bible says, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was born. That God's speaking came through Jesus Christ in the New Testament at just the right time, which was after 400 years of silence. So, so, so spare me if, if, if some of your, your 10 minutes of pain doesn't compare. And I'm not, trying, I'm not at all trying to discount your pain. I'm just saying, put it in perspective in light of eternity, and it will change the way you look at things. Um, now, when I talk about this, I got to give a little bit of context, and, and because, because when we talk about God being present with us, we have to admit there's a certain amount of hypocrisy when we talk about this, because you know there was a time, there was a night there was a weekend, there was a spring break, there was a summer when you were driving to get in trouble on purpose, right? You weren't thinking, oh God, I need your presence. You planned that night or that weekend in sin. You packed it in a cooler in the back seat or maybe you stuck it underneath the seat so that Popo wouldn't find it if he pulled you over. You planned sin. You did not turn on worship music and say, oh God, what a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus, as you were driving to 
sin. You planned on sinning. You did not go to a Christian that you, rem- you admire their, their wisdom and say, hey, is this the wise thing for me to do? Or why don't you come with me, wise Christian, to, to do my sin that I've planned in advance to do? You didn't do that. When you were driving to your sin or you were going to your sin, you did not care at all about God. He was the furthest thing from your mind. All you cared about was you and meeting whatever needs you had at that moment. You may not have said it, but your choice has said, I don't need you, God. I got this. And haven't you, have you realized that, that we are really good? When we don't want to hear what God says, we're really good at tuning him out. <clears throat> and every person has done it. The Bible says 100% of us have thumbed our nose at God at some point because he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have done this. But here's the remarkable thing. 100% of the people in this room, 100% of the people who are are alive today, 100% of the people who have been born from eternity until now and who will be born, 100% of the people, the Bible says, will turn their nose up at God, will thumb their nose at God, maybe even make gestures towards God. And the remarkable thing is he still loves us. Unbelievable that he still loves us. How do I know? Well, because of probably the most famous statement in history. Thinking of Casey Sermon when, when uh, Oprah said, the most written about person in history is Muhammad Ali. And, and uh, uh, that night we were doing our Bible study in here and um, they said there are 8 billion, with a B, billion Bibles just in the United States. I, I, don't, think, I don't think Muhammad Ali can touch that. But anyway... Maybe the most, I'm just throwing this out here, maybe the most famous statement in history, you help me finish it. For God so loved the good people, for God so loved Christ followers, for God so loved church members or deacons. The man who wrote the book of John, his name was John, he spent three and a half years with Jesus, day and night. At the end of his life, years later, he's thinking back to his time with Jesus, and he writes these words in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If this was the only verse in the Bible, it would prove to us that God is not angry, he's not apathetic, he's not absent, Because this tells us that Jesus, that God poured out his anger on his son for you so that you don't have to face his wrath. But we have other verses, don't we? Here's one in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says this, God made him who had no sin, who had no sin. The only one, Jesus. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was a purpose in Jesus becoming sin. It's so that you and I might become the righteousness of God, but the only way we become the righteousness of God is through him, in him. That's why we say you have to ask him to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. If you do not, you are not the righteousness of God. And when you stand before him at at the time of your death, he will say, depart from me because I don't know you, you're not righteous. But if you come to him through Jesus, he says, come on in. And share my joy. When Jesus became sin on our behalf, God forever, I want you to say that word forever. I want you to say that word forever. God forever settled whether he knows your name, whether he knows the time of your life, and whether he messed up by putting you in Palestine, Texas. Forever he said, I love you this much. I'll send my son to be sin for you so that you might become righteousness. I wish, and and Brian actually said he's going to make one for me. I wish I could have a huge cross behind all of eternity because the Bible says even before the foundation of the world, 
God decided that Jesus would die. So we're just going to put this on here and we're going to remind ourselves that we can't ever, don't you ever, look at your circumstances without also seeing the cross behind it. The backdrop of your circumstances is that God said, I love you enough to send my son to die in your place. I love you enough to make my son sin so that you don't have to be sin. And I wish I could just put it behind all of eternity because this is what you need to see is the cross of Jesus Christ behind it. You need to understand the foundation of your faith is the cross of Jesus. The reality that Jesus died, the reality that Jesus was buried, the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again. And when you trust God in dark times, you're not exercising blind faith. People accuse Christians of this all the time. Blind faith, you put your faith in something and you have no reason why. We have thousands of years of history. We have the Bible. We have the cross telling us that God has been involved with people, that God is pursuing a relationship with people. We have all of that. But here's the thing, and this is what some of you aren't going to like today. God's people do not live on explanations. God's people live on his promises. Let me explain what I mean. Um, I'm, I'm up in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy in my personal study, and I'm about to get to Joshua will be next. Uh, if you know anything about Joshua, you know, he grew up in Egypt in slavery. So he was a slave child. Um, he probably was the oldest of his family. So when uh, the 10th plague, he went through all 10 plagues that, that, uh, God sent to, to, convince Pharaoh to let the people go. So the 10th plague, he probably had to go with his dad or maybe, I don't know how old he was at this point, but that the blood that was put on the doorpost and over the top was, was uh, for his benefit to save his life because the death angel came, saw the blood, passed over. Joshua did not die because of the, the death of an innocent third party and the blood shed. Joshua went through the Red Sea with Moses. So Red Sea parted, he goes through dry ground. He stands on the other side, sees the waters come through, wipes out Egyptian army. Joshua was with Moses when he went on the Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments and the, and the law. Joshua was, was one of the ten, um, one of the twelve spies who went into the Promised Land. And said this is a good land. Only two of the spies said we get to uh, let's go in and take it because God said we could. Joshua and Caleb. So they they wandered for thirty eight years. Joshua and Caleb wandered with them. God said everybody who who is twenty years and older will die in the wilderness. And so Joshua and Caleb are the only two that were above 20 that got to go into the promised land. Moses eventually hands the keys over and says, Joshua is going to be the new leader of the, of the uh, Israelites. And so right before they go into um, the, the promised land, the Jordan River at flood stage dries up and they walk through again. So Joshua twice has gone through on dry ground when it should not have been possible. And then Joshua was the one who led the people to take their inheritance and spread out all the different tribes, got their different allotment of land. Joshua helped them. At the end of Joshua's life, look what Joshua says in twenty three fourteen. And you know, he's talking to the people who have settled in the land, who have seen God, whose parents died in the wilderness. He said, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. He said, there are promises of God. Moses has written them down. Everything God said ahead of time, because he kept saying, you're going to go in the land. You're going to go in the land. When I deliver the land, he promised. God is a God who promises things. He does not explain things to you and he does not have to. He's not required to because he's God. 
Now, if you ever study uh, the Old Testament, I just got through Exodus a while back. Um, you're going to find out that God was very visible. They knew all they had to do, stand at the tent. If the cloud moved, they moved. If the cloud didn't, they didn't. They could hear God at times. He spoke in an audible voice and God was immediately fair. There were times that God's holiness and fairness broke out so that people died immediately. Like when they came into his presence in an improper manner, they died immediately. God was immediately fair. Now, this is important because people will say all the time, oh, if God would just speak in a way I could hear him, if he would do something I could see, if he would just be a God of justice, I would follow him. No, you wouldn't. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. God showed up in Exodus almost daily and he was very clear. And here's what he said. Here's some of the things. If they obeyed, look at this. Here's some of the promises. If you obey Israel, you'll be prosperous. You'll have prosperous cities and nations. No sterility, meaning everybody will have babies, men, animals, women, nobody, everybody. You'll have crazy amounts of babies. Bountiful crops. You'll have crazy amounts of crops. Dependable weather conditions. Guaranteed military victory. Total immunity to diseases. That's pretty cool. Moses says, if you disobey, here's what's going to happen. Violence, crime, poverty everywhere. Infertility among people and livestock. Crop failures, locusts, worms, scorching heat, drought, mildew, domination by other nations, fever and inflammation, madness, blindness, confusion of mind. And anybody with, with any sense would go, I'll choose the first one. I want all the good stuff. And so you know with God being audible, visible, audible, and being immediately fair, you just know that Israel followed him with all their heart, right? No. Here's a, something else. Okay, so numbers, the, the commentator that I'm using, that I'm reading in my studies, numbers, he said, was um, the largest funeral procession, longest funeral procession in history. 38 years they marched till all those people died. And they said that Deuteronomy is the longest farewell speech in history. Moses is about to leave. He can't go into the promised land because of disobedience. And he's handing over the the reins to Joshua. In his farewell speech, in the last chapter, here's what Moses says. First one, go ahead. He said, if you obey, God will put Israel high above all the nations on the earth. And he says, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. That's pretty cool, right? High above, always at the top. He said, if you disobey, look what happens. You will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord your God will drive you because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of your prosperity. Again, which one are you going to choose? See, here's how I know you would not follow God if he was visible, if he was audible, and, and he was immediately fair. Because this experiment was written down in the scriptures within 50 years of the death of Joshua, Israel was in complete chaos and anarchy. And Judges tells us everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's what you and I would do too. Most of the Old Testament, the rest of it tells us about this sad history of God's curses, not his blessings. Then when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers tell us that the Old Testament was, a, was an experiment um, that, that failed and, and, and demonstrated that you and I, human beings, are not capable of holding up a covenant with God. And the New Testament writers wrote as if we needed a new covenant, a new testament based on grace and forgiveness. And guess what we get in the New Testament? Grace and forgiveness. Glory to God. We could go right there, but we're not going to. Now, I wanted to tell you what the New Testament, the new covenant based on glory, grace, forgiveness, what it says about disappointment with God. First story is John the Baptizer. Uh, we call him John the Baptist. I don't know when he got John the Baptist, but he was called John the Baptizer because he baptized people who identified with his message. Real simple. Well, one day Jesus was teaching and some of John's disciples show up and they say, hey, John sent us with a question for you. The question is, are you the one 
or should we look for somebody else? What he's saying is, are you the Messiah? Because you remember, John said at the beginning, when he baptized Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. He's saying, he's the guy. Now he's saying, are you the guy? Hmm. Now, why didn't John, if you know this story, why didn't John ask Jesus himself? He was in prison. Well, let me explain why. John's ministry was in the region of King Herod. Not King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great is the one that killed all the babies when, in Bethlehem when Jesus was born because he heard the king of the Jews had been born. So he wiped out all the babies trying, because Herod was kind of crazy. Herod uh, named himself Herod the Great because of all his archaeological uh, buildings. He built some magnificent things. So he names himself Herod the Great. I named him Herod the Nutjob or Herod the Psycho or Herod the Paranoid because he killed several of his sons and several of his wives because he thought they were going to try to take over his kingdom. So Herod the Nutjob names all of his children Herod. So he has Herod Philip. He has Herod Antipas. He names everybody. He's got nothing. George Foreman's got nothing on him. And and he even has a niece named Herodias because even the relatives are going, man, we better name something after him because he's nuts. He's Herod the nut job. Herod the great. So we're talking about Herod Philip. Herod Philip marries his niece Herodias. That's weird. It's going to get weirder. Philip goes on a trip to Rome. And so Herodias has an affair with her other uncle, Herod Antipas. Everybody go, ooh, that's just gross. And so while he's gone, they they decide they're going to be a thing. And and they decide to, to get married. So Herod Antipas marries Herodias, who was his brother's wife and also his niece. Follow that on the flow chart later. You can, you can mark that out. Uh, Everyone knows this is immoral behavior and shouldn't happen. And John the Baptist keeps mentioning it in his sermons. Now, King Herod Antipas, he doesn't think much of it, but Herodias, she cannot stop thinking about John the Baptist because he won't quit talking about his for- her former Herod. And so she asks her current Herod, would you throw him in jail because he won't shut up about my other Herod? So Herod Antipas throws John in jail, in prison, but not any prison. It's on the easternmost part of the kingdom by the Dead Sea. It's actually in what is today modern-day Jordan, and it's in a, in a place called Machiris. And um, he sits in Machiris in a dungeon for at least a year. Some people may say maybe a year and a half. And he does what you and I do when we don't hear from God for a year or a year and a half. He begins to doubt Jesus. Now, how did Jesus feel about him? Let me explain. Jesus loved John the Baptist. They were, they were related. John the Baptist's mom was Elizabeth and Jesus' mom was married. They were maybe cousins. We don't know. It says relatives. So they were probably cousins. So John the Baptist and Jesus, they're second cousins. Wouldn't it be cool to be cousins with Jesus? Man, I'd flash that out all the time. Jesus, my cousin, right? Janie has a letter somewhere from one of her ancestors that mentions Pocahontas and that she is somehow related to Pocahontas. So just at random times, Janie would go, well, you know what cousin Pocahontas says? And, and she just throws that out all the time. Cousin Pocahontas, wouldn't it be cool to be the cousin of Jesus? Not just that, not, not just cool to be the cousin or related to him. It would be cool if Jesus thought highly of you, right? Let me show you what Jesus thought of him. Matthew eleven eleven. truly I tell you among those born among women, there is not risen among anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus thought very highly of his cousin. This is what Jesus thought of John the Baptist, but John the Baptist isn't sure what he thinks of Jesus. Now let's back up into Matthew four. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, if the Bible was made up to make Jesus look good, they would not include what I'm about to read to you. 
But the Bible is not a made-up story. The Bible tells us what happened. It's factual. It's eyewitness testimony. And, I, and Jesus doesn't look bad. I'm just going to show you that you're going to think, wow, why did Jesus do that? When I read you the rest of the story. Here it is. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake. I don't know where my pointer is. All right. Too bad. Here's the map. Matcherus, see it down here by Dead Sea? Look way up there. See where Nazareth is? Long ways away. Now, if you, if you were writing this story and you want to make Jesus look good, you'd probably say, Jesus left Nazareth and he went south to Mattress to break John the Baptist, his cousin whom he loved, out of jail. That's not what it says. It says, go to the next map. So you see, you know where Mattress is. You see Nazareth, see Capernaum up there at the top of the Sea of Galilee? Jesus went the other way. And some of you are going, that's what Jesus does when I ask him. When I'm in a dark day, Jesus is not even in the same zip code. I wish he'd show up. That's what you're saying, right? Jesus goes the other way. Now, it gets worse. Here's a, here's a picture of, of what Herod's palace kind of looks like. This is a, an archaeological dig, and you can't see it's kind of fuzzy at the top. There's some posts up there from his palace. All right, this is by the Dead Sea, and don't you love this, the view right there? If you were in the dungeon, here would be your, your view. That's awesome right there, right? Yeah. I'm in the dungeon for a year and a half, and this is all I get to see. gets worse. Let me show you what Capernaum looks like. Jesus left Nazareth, went to Capernaum. He didn't go to Matras to save. Jesus goes to the lake. Now, there's a painting here. This is a painting of, of what it looks like from Capernaum, Jesus' adopted hometown. It's one of my favorite places we went to in, in Israel. Um, the, are those palm trees? Here's an actual picture from St. Peter's restaurant looking from Capernaum looking out. Those are palm trees. Jesus is at the beach. And John the Baptist is in the dungeon. And John the Baptist had enough. And so he, his disciples who are feeding him, because if you, don't, if you don't have somebody feed you when you're in the dungeon during this time, you rot and die. So his disciples come to feed him. He goes, I've had enough. I need you to go ask Jesus. And you saw how far it was up to Capernaum. I need you to go ask Jesus, are you the one? Or should we look for somebody else? Because the implication is John thinks that Jesus is not the one because Jesus is not doing the job that John the Baptist thinks he should do. And that's what you and I think when we're in dark times. God, you're, you're not doing the job I think you ought to do. And many people turn and walk away at that point. Now, I want you to see what Jesus says to John the Baptist. This is a very godlike response. If you remember the story of Job, when Job kept saying, why, 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 God shows up and says, where were you? <laughs> he doesn't answer why. He says, where were you, dude? When I did all this and Job was like, I'm not going to talk again. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus replied, go back and report to John. So this was a yes or no question. Are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one come from God? Yes or no question. Jesus says, go back and tell him. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now he's quoting Isaiah 61, 1, which also says, and the prisoners are set free. He left that out because wouldn't that be a slap in Jay the B's face? I, because here's what he's doing. He goes, oh my goodness, Jesus is doing magnificent things for everybody but me. And this is what we do when we're, it's great that God's blessing you, but what's he done for me? Jesus emphasized what he's doing for everybody else. Here's what I want you to see. Right after John the Baptist's disciples left, here's what Jesus says in Matthew eleven six. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
Blessed is, is anyone who does not equate my silence with my absence. Blessed is he who does not live by sight, but on all the promises that God has carried out from the beginning until now, all the promises that are carried out in Scripture, because we are a people of promises, not explanations. Jesus knew where John the Baptist was. And in fact, Jesus goes to where John the Baptist taught. And when he starts teaching, people, crowds are gathering and people are going, hey, this is the guy. This is the one Jay the B told us about. And then they go, by the way, where's Jay the B? I don't know. He's in prison. And Jesus is teaching and somebody walks up while he's teaching and says, Jesus, this is John eleven three. The one you love is sick. Now, if this happened to you, you might think it's one of your children because it says the one you love, not the one who loves you. Maybe a spouse, I don't know, somebody. But the point is Jesus loved this guy so much they didn't have to say his name. The one you love is sick. And if you know the story, who was he talking about? Lazarus. Now, Jesus loved him, so what does he do? It tells us in, in verses five and six. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So that's the, Lazarus, the brother. Jesus loved him. The Bible tells us Jesus loved him. He just said, the one you love is sick. And then it says, Jesus loved him. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Is that what you expected Jesus to do? No, Jesus could have spoken the word. There's a time when he healed a boy from 38 miles away. The, the physical distance from where Jesus was and where he healed someone was 38 miles. He could just speak the word. Jesus could have walked there. It was a very short walk, about half a day walk from where he was and to where Lazarus was sick. But Jesus says, let's wait. Why? This is one time he actually gave a little bit of an explanation. He says, because God is doing something that you have no idea about. God is doing something you do not understand. So he waited for two days until Lazarus died. Jesus knew exactly where he was. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he let him die. Don't confuse Jesus' apparent absence with apathy that he doesn't care. Blessed is he who does not stumble account of me is what Jesus said. John the Baptist's death, wherever it was on the timeline, was not the end of God's activity in this world. Lazarus was raised, but he died again. And his, his death was not the end of God's activity on this planet. And whatever area you're in right now, whatever dark period you're in right now, God's not done. His activity will continue on with or without your cooperation. See, when you believe these lies, this first one, I'll never be happy again. Really, you don't need happiness because it depends on what happens. What you need is joy. Joy is a fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Control comes from the Holy Spirit. Joy is in spite of circumstances. When you believe the lie that um, nothing good can come from this, you need hope. We just sing, I hope in you alone. It is well with my soul. You need hope. When you believe the lie that no, there's no point in continuing my life or this marriage or this whatever. What you need is a purpose. And when you believe the lie, I'm the only one. You need fellowship with God and with other believers. Now, here's the cool thing about all four of those things the joy, the hope, the purpose, and the fellowship. They can all be restored. David prayed, God restored, after he was, he was caught in adultery, he prayed, God restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
your hope. We sang about it. Joy comes in the morning, hope. A few weeks ago, I played the song, um, Thy Will Be Done. And I ask, I ask this, I, first service to service, I said, how many of you are willing to pray, thy will be done? And if you remember, especially in this service, a lot of people raised their hands and I said, wow. And I, my prayer was, God, I hope it's true. Because it's easy to say, oh yeah, thy will be done when things are going well. But when you're at a place that you can't do anything, you don't know what to do next, it's not easy to pray, thy will be done. Because you don't want his will to be done. All of those things can be restored. You can be happy again. Something good can come out of this. When you trust God, there's always purpose in your pain. Mercy me, Bart Millard, the, the lead singer, when he wrote this song, he referenced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And, and here's, what, here's what the king says. He says, if you will bow down to my golden, my 90-foot golden statue, I will not throw you into the fire, but if you do not bow down, I will throw you into this fire. And what God is there who can save you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, dear king, we don't have to answer you, but we're going to. Our God is able, but even if he does not, we will not bow. King gets mad, throws him in. He goes, hey, weren't there just three? I see a fourth, and he's like the son of God. Now, even if Jesus had taken them to heaven from there, he went with them into the fire. He protected them, brought them out, and and the king goes, oh, your God's the real one. I'll follow him. I think sometimes we need to quit singing these songs because we really don't mean it. I hope in me alone. I hope in my spouse, I hope in my children, I hope in my job. The kingdom of God is made up of people who say, I hope in you. You are able. But even if you don't, I will not bow to anything but the cross. You bow your heads. God, I pray that you move in power in people's lives today. Because the enemy, the enemy attacks us and 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 without even knowing it, God, we we succumb to his attacks and, and we we bring glory to his kingdom instead of to your kingdom. We don't want to be that people. God, it's, it's my prayer that you would stir up in some people today a desire to be a fully devoted follower of Christ who draws a line in the sand and says, come hell or high water, I will hope in you. Because that's what our world needs to see. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.